Broken trust can be healed, but it's not just time that's going to heal it. You need clear guidance about what to do and what not to do. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I've developed a free video course called The First Steps to Rebuilding Trust. This course will show you what's needed to begin healing after betrayal. I offer guidance for the betrayed partner as well as the partner who broke the trust. You can access it for free right now by clicking the link in the show notes. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I want to welcome you to my podcast, From Crisis to Connection. Each week on this podcast, my guests and I will give you and your loved ones resources and tools to heal from the crises of infidelity, pornography, abusive behaviors, and betrayal trauma. But we also talk about how to build and maintain healthy connection in your most important relationships. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you're here. Maybe you felt this in your marriage before where one day you just sort of realize, wow, just not feeling it anymore. Just don't feel the romance, don't feel the passion, don't feel the excitement. I wonder if there's something wrong with my relationship. Maybe there's been a betrayal, maybe there's been some sort of major injury and you feel like in some ways that you can't ever really get those loving feelings back, the attraction, the intensity of the romance. I've worked with people that have had affairs and they feel like they don't really have the excitement, the energy, the, the passion, the intensity that they felt in the affair. And there's all kinds of variations of this. But at the core of it is this belief that a healthy marriage should be intense, passionate, romantic, that you should be regularly doing things to spice up or intensify your connection with each other. My guest today is Jacob Hess, and he says that this is one of the, he believes, one of the most harmful myths out there about long-term committed marriage. And as he says, he's not anti-romance and he's not anti-excitement in marriage, but there's a lot we don't really understand about what true, deep, long-term committed love really looks like and how a lot of the times when the hard times begin and things start to maybe feel like they're not as exciting or romantic or passionate, that that's actually the time when you're invited to really start to love your partner. Jacob Hess is a mindfulness teacher and writer focused on exploring long-term sustainable healing from depression. He's on the board of the National Coalition of Dialogue and Deliberation and has written a couple of books. One of them is, You're Not As Crazy As I Thought, But You're Still Wrong. And his passion is to preserve space for people to disagree sharply while still loving and respecting each other. He's also written a book on mindfulness for a Latter-day Saint audience and has done a lot of great work in the recovery space as well, helping people to learn mindfulness and healthy approaches to dealing with addictions and mental health issues. Jacob is one of our favorite thinkers. Uh, My wife and I both love and respect him and his writing. And this conversation that we're going to have today about expectations in marriage and really understanding some of the harmful cultural messages around marriage and romance and excitement came from an article that he wrote for Meridian Magazine, which I also write for, but it first appeared in Public Square Magazine, and I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes so you can access it. And it's just one of the best articles I've read. And I I shared that with Jacob on here, but I, I just really love his message and the realism here about what it really takes to make a long term relationship work. One thing I love about Jacob is that he's courageous, he's willing to speak out about things that are uncomfortable and expecting people to hold space for his perspective, and he is someone who will hold space for yours. If there's things that come up in this discussion that are challenging for you, just encourage you to slow down and just invite that in and see if you can make room for another perspective. A lot of the messages that we've had about marriage and about long-term romance and long-term relationships oftentimes does not set us up for success. It does not set us up to really experience the deep joy that's available to us. We live in a very individualistic, self-centered culture that prioritizes individual happiness. And long-term marriage is not about individual happiness. There's something bigger going on here. And we explore that today in this episode. And of course, I'm joined by my wife, Jody, in our interview with Jacob Hess. I look forward to hearing your thoughts and feedback on this. I'd love to hear from you. Shoot me a direct message, email. Let me know what you think of this interview as we talk about this article that he wrote called What's Hijacking So Many Beautiful Relationships. Here's our interview with Jacob Hess. 
Jacob, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for being here. I enjoyed our last conversation. So nice to meet you, sweetheart. Yeah. yeah I'm happy to be here. Love having Jody so here. In this conversation with you, Jacob. So today we're going to talk about an article that you wrote recently that for me, and, I, and I'm not being dramatic here, I really mean this. This was probably one of the best articles on marriage that I've read in a long, long time. And it's one that I've shared with a lot of people. And, and I just, I don't expect our readers to have read it or our listeners to have read it before this conversation. And I will link to it in the show notes so you can read the whole thing. But Jacob, can you just go through and give a summary of this article? And then we'll jump into a discussion about it. Sure. So the impetus for the article was my own experience and other people's experience of feeling excited in a relationship back when I was a single man, and then suddenly having that change and going on this nauseating, heartbreaking journey of, ah, I'm in love, this is wonderful, to not feeling anymore. And so I decided to interview other men and women, mostly singles, mostly Latter-day Saints, and just ask about their experiences. And over and over, I heard things like, I, I was just so in love, and then I felt nothing. I just had no affection. We date, things are great, we're happy, then it just drops off. And this was not exclusive to men. Women would also talk about losing the feeling, not feeling enough. And then at that point, it's almost like nothing more to do. I don't feel it anymore. And so it was sort of like the verdict had come down on the relationship. And I was like, well, see ya. Mm. And clearly that's not unique just to dating couples. This happens within marriages and it can be really frightening. Ah, not feeling the level of attraction and passion and romance that I want or deserve or I'm supposed to feel. And so most often what I noticed others experience and my own is sort of taken for granted that the, the next right step has to be just walking away. And when we do, we say, must not have been right. Mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she must not have been right. He must not have been right. The marriage must not have been right. Which is sometimes true, especially if there's abuse going on or something, right? But other times, you know, like there's something else going on here. So my proposal in this article is that in many cases, these relationships that are getting aborted and, and, and killed, right, are right after all. And there's a beauty potential there that is being missed. Um, but they're being crushed under the weight of this story of the kind of romance and passion we're supposed to have, right? And so most of the articles, you know, goes through this elements of, of what we're culturally conditioned to demand from our partners, a passion that is immediate and unchanging, um, a passion that is overwhelming and all-consuming. You know, we're not supposed to be attracted to anyone else. And I go through some of the history of uh, back in southern France in the 13th century. This ideal arose of brave knights that would worship a fair lady as his inspiration and as the symbol of all beauty and perfection. <laughs> and, you know, that kind of sounds funny. We laugh, but we also kind of know that that's what we're doing, right? More than one person, and these are not just religious voices, these are cultural theorists have argued that as, as religion has declined in the Western world, romance has come to fill its place as like this source of meaning and purpose and transcendence. And we all know the beauty and the joy of, of sweet affection, right? This is not discounting that at all, but it is saying that maybe romance can't live up to that. <laughs> Oh, that's a ton of pressure. Oh my gosh. I mean, maybe this other human being can't actually be the one we worship and the source of all of our needs being met. But that yeah. is sometimes what we're asking of people, of our spouses, of the people we're dating. And if they are failing to meet these incredible otherworldly expectations, it's like, 
sorry for you, sorry for us. I just, I'm not fulfilled. And of course, fulfillment is what this is all about. So that's what the article is, is about, is, is trying to ask some questions about that and saying, maybe there's another reason that all these beautiful relationships are getting, you know, are dissolving. And I'm calling it a hijack. It feels to mm-hmm. me, it feel, last thing I'll say is it feels to me like really beautiful relationships with amazing possibilities for happiness are getting crushed and hijacked by this story that is not, I mean, not humanly attainable, not fair, not true, not of God. <laughs> so, and I've, I've seen that happen in my own life in past dating relationships. So. So as you're talking about this story, and as I read the article, I found myself thinking, I'm not doing that. I, surely I'm not putting all that pressure on my current relationship. And there was something inside me that was resisting that a little bit. I mean, I didn't really want to look at the pressure that I was putting, but I feel like those cultural messages, I mean, and, and Jeff and I got married in the 90s. So it's been a while. We, we're not even, you know. We're, there was no social media. There was no. No. There were Disney fairy tales, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think that maybe we could talk about being able to recognize how we bring that into our relationships, whether it's a, a potential relationship or a current relationship, and we just add to the, the pressure. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, that's good because... What you're pointing to is a kind of blindness that we can all have, right? Rather than seeing this thing that we bought into, we just blame our partner for not being enough. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, and, yeah. And we carry this resentment around like, uh, how dare you not meet like this important need? So, so Robert Johnson is a therapist and he, I mean, ask yourself if this applies to you. Here's one question you could ask. Do you believe in his words? that one mortal human being has the responsibility for making your life whole, (laughs) keeping you happy, making your life meaningful, intense, and ecstatic. Now that's the kind of language, again, that was formerly reserved for God. But there is this thing where I quote another letter of a guy to his girlfriend who wrote, I breathe by you. I live by you. You know, this is, we love this stuff. It's like, ah, you know, we watch the show and we're like, yes. (laughs) <laughs> they're breathing they live i live through you now that if you read the new testament is how the apostle paul talks about christ it is and 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 uh, yeah. other believers of other faiths talk about allah and like I, we live by god so are you allowing your partner to be a human being that's that's the that's the only wedding advice i give people is please let your spouse be a human being doesn't mean you know you know, allow your relationship to become degrading or abusive or, or, or bad things to happen like that. But it's when we start to act like a bit of a tyrant, we expect more than is reasonable to expect. And Stephanie Kuntz is a, is a historian. And she adds that we have never before in history, this is her words, had societies thought that such a set of high expectations about marriage was either realistic or desirable. <laughs> so yeah. there you go. Never before. Right. Right. And I, I remember, I remember uh, I was at a conference with Sue Johnson years ago and she said something like, because of the loss of community, because the loss of, you know, neighbors spending time together, extended family, oftentimes not living close to so we're so fragmented society. I mean, people just come in and out of their garages now. You know, there's not gathering places. There's not places where we have a sense of belonging to any larger group than ourselves. And so she says, basically, the pressure on one person, on the marriage proper, to really be all the eggs in one basket, to meet all the expectations, to be your best girlfriend or your best guy friend, to, you know, fill the role of elders and extended family. And all these other, you know, and a lot of people working from home now, especially like we've lost so many places where we could basically outsource to a degree some of these lesser relationships, but they would, they would fulfill a purpose. They would give us a lot of the reciprocity, the call and response, the validation, the sense of belonging, and to put all that on one human who needs to be on all the time to pull that off. Yeah, no. And so she's like that. 
that's asking a lot of our marriages, even though marriage can provide a lot of that and a healthy marriage should provide a level of being seen and reciprocity and fidelity and commitment and longevity. But that's a lot to ask. That is, you make a great point about other relationships and the network of people, but it's, we love the idea that this one person, I want to clarify that this can all start to feel very anti-romance and as if, as if we're saying, oh, come on now, who needs, and it's not that. And that's why I have a section in the article about comfortable romance. So an Italian historian or, or a historian about families in Italy talks about tranquil affection. Yeah, I like that. That used to be widely understood to develop over a course of a long-term relationship. And there's this, there's this idea of growing in a very deep love that doesn't necessarily have to initiate with head over heels, like madly in love. I didn't fall in love with my wife. And that, that might sound like, oh, shock and horror. My wife and I have grown in love and that's okay. Like our love is robust and beautiful, but it wasn't like this, I can't stop thinking about you. You're my everything. You know, like uh, Brian, Mm -hmm. what's that 80s rock star, Brian Adams songs? (laughs) (laughs) You know, like everything I do, I do it for you. Yes, yes, everything I do, I do it for you. People feel bad. I've actually seen couples like they feel like they're doing something wrong if they don't measure up to that. Even if they have beautiful growth and trajectory in their relationship, it can be scary for people because you're transgressing that sacred norm. And so that's why I hope couples that that might be experiencing a less, a decrease in affection or connection, which can happen for lots of reasons to the point of your podcast, trauma. You know, if you've been through trauma of some kind, it's really normal to have levels of affection and connection and excitement. It doesn't mean they're dead. You can't come back and grow. If you're on an antidepressant, very normal to have like evolutions in those feelings. And for lots of other reasons, if we go through a period of being really busy, you know, Mm -hmm. and so like life itself is is also going to put things on a relationship that if, if we're not allowing ourselves to be human and our connection to be evolving, yeah, it doesn't, it's not going to go very well. No. Yeah. A lot of, I think a lot of times I, I'm going to go back to a point you made earlier, Jacob, but even about your own relationship that, I mean, I look at our courtship and it was, it was short, you know, we met and I was head over heels and Jody definitely grew into it a little later, but, but for me, it was that intense experience of, attraction and excitement, which is kind of how I just approach life anyway. Mm-hmm. And Jody's is much more slow to warm up. And, and we ended up, you know, getting married after from, you know, start to finish from when we met to when we got married, it was like four months. It was really fast, probably too fast for Jody. Like yeah. looking back on it like mm-hmm. that, I think, I think that that, that was probably a kind of a whirlwind, even though we both felt good about it. But it's interesting. I love what you're saying that like, so much of the conventional wisdom and advice you hear out there is, well, you've got to be attracted. You've got to like, you know, you got to feel something for him. And, and I've talked with, we have friends where somebody's dating someone is like, well, he's not really my type. He's not the kind of guy I normally date, but you know, we have a nice friendship. And so they go in almost kind of nervous, like, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not just trying to like, you know, kiss him all the time or feel super close physically. Like I don't have that attraction, but I like the relationship. So and what you're saying is that, that really that you can grow into this kind of deeper connection, which is what long-term relationships are made of anyway, and that romance, even though we're not anti-romance, it is way overinflated, overblown, and really sets us up for a lot of disappointment. Yeah, I mean, well said. We, we, we might also think about it like a, there's kind of a narrowness to the romantic standard. You know, we're all about diversity in America, but our views of romance are kind of like, no, but, but romance needs to look like this like yeah you need to be immediately so head true. over heels it needs to be constant if, if, if it starts to be ever something something's wrong and it needs to be overwhelming to the point of sort of ecstasy not even brad and angelina can survive that i mean <laughs> like, think about it these people that look like demigods you know they're, they're not yeah. they're not gonna 
like be hyper sexually aroused all the time with each other, then it's like, you know. So I, you could also think about it as widening and, and just appreciating the spectrum of very diverse ways that affection and romance manifest, not just physically, but emotionally and uh, spiritually and mentally. There's also like Ty Mansfield talks about the, the spectrum of attraction. It's not just a physical thing. There's like multi, multiple, you know, multiple dimensions. I also want to say for, for those who feel kind of unsettled by this idea, because it is unsettling. I mean, it unsettles a sacred norm in our society, our secular society. Scott Peck, who wrote one of the most well-read books in psychology, wrote Less Traveled. He argues, and I love this, the moment in a relationship when a couple experiences an ebb where the feelings ebb, it's an opportunity. He actually says that that feeling of intensity is a trick that Mother Nature, Mother Nature plays on us to get us together in the first place. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but not all of us experience it really that intense. But he says sooner or later, every couple will have some kind of just steadying of feeling. And instead of freaking out and saying, oh, no, what's wrong with us? This is a problem before or after marriage. He says this is the opportunity. This because whereas before, if you're just you're driven by these feelings and all your needs are getting met, you're kind of with that person because of what they're doing for you. But, mm. but when, the, oh, when yeah. the feelings start to ebb, he says, that is your chance to choose to be there for this person, not just because you're fulfilling my everything, <laughs> you know? but because you are there for them. And someone that you, you know, we both respect as a religious figure, Gordon Hinckley once talked about love as an anxious concern for the comfort and well-being of one's companion. That doesn't, what his argument is, is we actually have an opportunity to do that for the first time when our own sort of maybe more selfish or personal motivations ebb a little bit. And so it's kind of cool to think, no, 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 no. Your true love is only going to grow in that moment. One story, when my mother got sick with cancer, it was only later after her death that I had found out from my father what it was like, you know, to go through years of his sweetheart. Her body became like an 80-year-old woman. And the impact on their own intimacy and their own connection is profound. I've seen men walk away in moments like that and just like, mm -hmm. all right, my needs aren't being met. My dad was there more for my mom, right? He was, he loved her more when the romance and feelings were interfered with. And that to me has become an inspiration to me. So, so that couples can say, okay. Instead of freaking out about this, what if this is an opportunity for us to really show each other how much, you know, you matter to me? And this is not just about, I'm not fulfilled enough. <laughs> you know? No, 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 yeah. no. And, and what I found in my marriage, like watching my dad, is that's when love starts to just take off. I mean, because you're growing something that's not just a... a a feeling dependent phenomenon and it's not just self-absorbed it's something so beautiful so i hope that's hopeful for people and it's it's a continuation and a deepening of true love and romance it's not an anti-deep and true love it's like no no no. maybe this is your chance to really find that mm -hmm. so i love that i just love the depth of what you're talking about but I, I also have this question in my mind for that others might be having, and especially for those who are, are getting ready to make these kinds of decisions and commitments in relationships. How can, like with this new way of approaching a relationship, how can someone move forward trusting that that kind of depth of love and appreciation and commitment will be reciprocated because that's a big leap to make on your own. Yeah. it's a great question. Well, what I encourage people to think about is um, the Buddha once said, follow the peace. And of course, you know, 
ancient teachers across all faith traditions have said similar things. Once you've kind of unburdened your relationship from inhuman expectations, Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's still a question of like, what is your deeper compass saying? And what I encourage people is to follow the peace, not the excitement. We can get excited about lots of things, including the wrong thing. I've seen lots of people excited about the wrong person (laughs) or a cause that's wrong or a direction that's wrong, but they're excited. You know, I mean, how many bad investments have been made? Like, oh, I'm really excited (laughs) about this. (laughs) So we can be duped. The feeling of excitement to me is not as trustworthy as the feeling of peace. And when I say peace, I don't just mean like mental, I can make sense up here. I mean, in your gut, when you're alone, Mm -hmm. when you've spent an hour outside on a walk. What does your gut say? I know there have been times in my life, I was in love with a, a girl once. I was head over heels. She was amazing. I, the only thing I wanted to do was marry this girl. And I had no peace. I, oh, wow. I couldn't feel in my, in my heart peace. I couldn't feel it on a run. I couldn't feel it in the temple, in a, in a sacred place, like Latter-day Saint temples for us. But when I broke up with her, when, when, when I kissed goodbye, the peace came back. So I do think that that's one way, at least for me, that I feel God's will in my life, deeper wisdom. And if you're headed into a, a bad situation, I think you'll feel in your gut, like, ah, something, something's not, not feeling right. So that's what I like to encourage with. That it takes some time to access, but I think we can all do it. So Jacob, for building on Jody's question, for couples that are already together married and the reciprocity isn't there and you know the idea of following the peace in terms of kind of trying to address the, the lack of reciprocity or trying to build in, you know, it's like, yeah, the romance has faded. I don't have a supply to like of excitement to push this forward anymore. And it's terrifying for me to give more to you or to try and sacrifice because I don't trust you'll reciprocate back. A lot of couples I work with that are, you know, have been injured or there's been betrayals, you know, it can feel so one-sided and so scary. How does follow the peace apply there for couples like this? Well, in situations where there's degrading or abusive patterns going on, you know, in my mind, as others have taught, there's nothing sacred there to hold on to and so like we have to be open to the peace leading us to do something hard and stepping away and not but i've also seen situations where a relationship seems like there's a lot of potential and a lot of healing potential and a lot of workability but the couple is just so resentful and you know like so done with each other that there's there's not a willingness to try that so before I would hope maybe as a part of the process of this experiment of what, you know, what is right. There is this, well, let me just speak personally, my own marriage, you know, there was, there were some difficulties that we were navigating and we wondered, you know, you know, maybe, and I'm trying to make sure I'm I'm addressing your question. You're talking about a relationship where there is one person not willing, right? I want to make sure like one person is totally checked out or is it, are you talking about a a situation where there's some willingness? Oh, I mean, I think both are, are on my mind, but I definitely am thinking more of the couple where, where one person is sensing that they are more committed than the other person, that they are, that the other person's, you know, not showing up, not reciprocating, not connecting. And they're, they're at this place of like, okay, Definitely experiencing some humanness for my partner, definitely experiencing like a complete lack of attraction and romance. How much do I need to keep giving? Like follow the peace, you know, where does that come in? Well, it's not uncommon in my experience to have couples that are just having some difficulties feeling what you're describing. Like, well, I'm the only one giving any, my partner. So I think that with the exception of a situation where one partner is being degrading and abusive, my own biases, there's usually a lot more workability and potential yes. than a couple recognizes. You know, it seems like we're a lot quicker to abort, jump ship. I'm done with this. I'm done with this person. So 
to that, let me just say this. In addition to what we've already talked about, there is a tradition of thought that I reference in the book, not so much in the article, of love as a practice. And you'll resonate with this quote, the art of love turns out to be very like the practice of Zen or the practice of any Eastern religious art. And rather than commitment to passion, this author says, it's about commitment to a human being. So rather than your whole decisive process being oriented around, am I getting my passionate needs met? Your orientation is around this other person and a commitment in love or a standing in love. Scott Peck says genuine love is volitional rather than emotional. And he says, Mm. the person has made a commitment to be loving whether or not the loving feeling is present. If it is, so much the better. But if it isn't, the commitment to love, the will to love still stands and is still exercised. Now, it goes without saying that that could be manipulated. It could go wrong, right? Like somebody could be committed in choosing love and have decades of a partner being terrible to them, right? That's not what this is about. What this is about is if there is potential for this relationship to heal, it's going to take at least one person first trying something else. And that is, hey, what if I, let's say your partner's just seems not to be giving as much. What, but what if you said, I'm going to try this. There's a book called The Love Dare you're probably familiar with. And it's like 40 days of little things you do yeah. for your partner. And I've, I've seen people try that and be really surprised at the response from their partner when they start to do what one researcher, Barbara Lee Fredrickson at UNC calls micro moments of love, where little, she says, many micro moments of positivity resonance shared, it leads to this building thing over time. That's the only thing I'd say is before just saying, I'm done with this person, it's not going to work. Make sure you've tried that experiment and said, all right, you know, my partner's going to do what they're going to do, but what do I need to do in the relationship to really see if this thing can flower? My wife and I have been tempted to give up on gardening for so many years because we keep trying and we keep planting and keep and nothing grows. And that's how <laughs> that's how relationships can feel. And and obviously so many of the people you work with have tried this. I want to acknowledge that. But right. in my experience, sometimes it does take years to say, okay, okay, now this is starting to bear fruit. Maybe my partner is starting to recognize the, the investments I'm making. Yeah. Well, Go I, ahead, Joan. I want to say too, sometimes I have found myself trying in my efforts and my commitment to the relationship, but it is an effort to get my own needs met. It's not what you're talking about. I'm all my, all my working hard and trying is oh, totally. how can I get this guy to give me what I need? <laughs> I'm going to try that harder yeah, yeah, yeah. instead of really like you're talking about just choosing, choosing to love who he is, what he brings, and invest in that and trust that it'll be okay, that it'll work out, that I, I don't have to, you know, tit for tat and measure the outcome. And, yes. yes. And keep, yes. keep a list, you know, like, right. <laughs> here's everything I've done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I, a part of this is just being in a place where you can be guided by deeper wisdom. Because I know for me, when I'm like possessed, and I use that word on purpose, with resentment for someone, it's like mm. like resentment really takes over and starts to skew my perspective of them. Mm-hmm. I love how Robert Millet once said, love is about seeing each other truthfully, like not just seeing each other as, as conveniently aligned with my story about the world. And at one difficult moment in my own marriage, I, I just had this feeling that I, I needed to just watch my, my sweetheart, just observe and not try to fix anything and not try to um, make anything change. And I just remember, I remember sitting there <laughs> and watching all that she was doing for our family, for myself. And I started to see like, there's a place beneath all those feelings and those thoughts of, like, this isn't right. And this doesn't feel like I'm what I want. We can learn to rest 
in this deeper place where we're just like observing what is actually here. And what I found when I did that is there's a lot more beauty and a lot more goodness in my sweetheart than I was giving her credit for in my head, in my out of my feelings. Mm-hmm. This sort of cruelty. It's, it's like this very cruel appraisal that you wouldn't want others to do for you. Like, no. oh, look at all these ways my emotional needs are not being met by this person. Look at all these ways that they're not doing what I wanted them to do when we married. <laughs> and it's like, oh, please don't judge me with this, <laughs> the same level of... So there's a relief. This is partly what I'm saying. Is there's such a relief that comes. I remember the night when my wife and I were talking And if I can be a little more personal, my wife and I, at one point, we tried out this thing called Recovering Couples Anonymous. It was created by some 12-step group folks who had used the 12 steps to get away from alcohol. And we were like, okay, let's try Let's see what this could do for our relationship. And just like the normal 12 steps, the beginning of these 12 steps is saying we're stuck. We've done everything we can. We don't know what anything else we can do. That's step one. Step two is coming to believe that a power greater than yourself, whatever you want to call it, can restore you to intimacy. Like it's possible with higher help. And then step three is turning everything, all of your hopes and dreams and plans over to this God of your understanding. My wife and I did this and there, there's, you get, there's actually a you know book you follow. And in the weeks after doing that, my wife had an emotional moment where she's like, what if I'm not measuring up? I'm still not sure I'm meeting your expectations. And I immediately said, it's not about my expectations anymore. Like, it's about what God wants for our relationship. I know that your audience has different places in their spiritual journeys, but that's just one example of saying, instead of it being about my story, dictating as this mini dictator, (laughs) what happens? (laughs) It was like so relieving to say, let's put that on the shelf. And what if we just said, Whatever God wants for our relationship, let's let that be the expectation. And ever since then, things have, everything changed. Everything changed for our own relationship mm. when we just wow. started to say, what if we leave it a little open? And who knows what is possible for us? I know it's not, it's not meeting my needs or my expectations anymore. That is so draining. It just corrodes and crushes otherwise good relationships. And I would invite couples to sit with yourself and notice how much your own story of what you're supposed to feel and the attraction that you're supposed to experience and what this other person is supposed to be. Just watch that a little bit and say, is is this what you want to be resting on your relationship? Or what if you put that on the shelf? And, And what if you said, hey, let's chase after what God's expectation is for our relationship. And it turns out God's not as oppressive as my own head. No, (laughs) that is true. (laughs) Yeah. There's more grace, Mm -hmm. more patience, more trust, more wisdom. And I, as I'm listening to you talk about this and I, I just, I'm just really absorbing everything you're taking. It's just really moving me deeply. So thank you for that. And I, but as I'm thinking here, listening to this, I'm also thinking, I don't think Jacob is saying that you can't ask for your needs. You can't bring up things that matter to you. You can't have a voice in the marriage that you're just supposed to just throw your hands up and say, well, whatever God wants. Like, it's not this passive. Mm -mm. It's a very partnership active process of, right. I get to still identify things that are hurtful or harmful. And I think that's going back to this peace idea. I think that's where the peace will be, which is something doesn't feel healthy or right, or this is destructive. And if I don't bring this up, there won't be peace. And maybe I can create peace through honesty, through using my voice, through confronting patterns that are destructive or harmful. But I think so much of what you're describing is we aren't going to feel peace when all of our requests are centered around just our selfish story idea of like what the partner is supposed to do for us. Am I getting this right? Yeah. I mean, we have some dear friends right now in therapy and we just adore this couple. And, you know, we get reports back on how things are going. <laughs> I told this good friend the other day, look, this isn't going to work. This therapy, you know, like, this is what I'm doing. She's not doing enough and she needs to realize this and he needs to realize that. It's like, if that's the foundation of your healing, good luck. 
because Mm -hmm. I haven't seen any relationship in my life ever heal on that foundation. So it's, it's kind of like laying another kind of foundation, just talking endlessly. Blaine Fowers, University of Miami, once said that we think sometimes that communication skills are going to like solve everything. But sometimes if you give a couple better communication skills, they're just more able to convey their venom <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> at each other. So like if, if, it, if it's not like some sort of deeper emotional foundation of like, okay, here's where we rest. And for me and my wife, that was trusting that there's this higher, this being that could lead us. Right. Right. And we're going to trust, you know, we do need to have hard conversations, but we're going to like follow. And very often we've been dragged back into sort of the, this and that, and we just have to say, hold on, let's get back to our foundation. So yeah, it's not about, you know, sweeping things under the rug or not talking about things, but it is about having a foundation that is deeper than well, I did this and why aren't you doing that? It's like, no. Yeah, there really is in the peace. When you say follow the peace, there is so much there. Peace doesn't, following the peace doesn't always necessarily look peaceful or, I mean, it is peaceful, but it could be bringing up hard conversations. Following the peace, like you said, can lead to some of the, the deeper work. Because there's peace, you can trust in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can lead you to have harder conversations and it can lead you to say, let it be for a moment. You know, yes. Give some space to your relationship. So in my experience, it's like the one partner has work to do individually. The other partner has individual work. And then there's the couple work. And I know you talk about this. Another resource I know you've told everybody about, but the bonds that make us free, the Arbinger yeah. Institute, that's another great example of getting on our, a deeper foundation. You know, where, where you're like Mm -hmm. your way of being together. And that's another great resource. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This, this whole, you know, basically when the love, when the quote unquote sort of like secular love runs out, when the cultural love or romance or fire runs out, real love now creates a buffer. Real love creates space and room to like you said, do the deeper work to find places where you can feel close to each other, to build a legacy, to like, that's what creates the grace and the space in the, in the room is, is extending that. And it's, and it, like you said, it doesn't even take, I mean, micro expressions of love. It doesn't even take like a whole dump truck load of it. That powerful, that concentrated Mm -hmm. where a romance, you need a dump truck load, right. To get things moving. And real love is so much more potent and I love that idea that we can buffer the space and not have to jump ship right away when the romance runs out because the real love I think can, you know, can give us way more time and space than we even think is possible. I love what you just said, especially because this can feel a bit like we're on the defensive and we're saying, don't do that. You don't need that. Like we're in opposition to something that's beautiful, but you, your word, you just pointed towards another way to approach this. And it would be the, what I hope people take away from this. And that is, this isn't a real opportunity to embrace a deeper, more profound, even more beautiful experience of love, true love, like the kind that lasts, sustainable love. And you can be excited about that. So in other words, <laughs> rather than I'm losing out on something exciting, no, 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 no. Sure. You know, if we just lived all our lives in serial monogamy and we're like, okay, I'm not feeling it. Bye. There's like an excitement there, right? I mean, there's a, there's another version of life where Jeff and Jody have a lot more excitement because, you (laughs) know, see it, Jeff, that was a great couple of years together. It's a good run. (laughs) But I would say this, I know people who are doing that. That is not as exciting as what you're doing. It's not as exciting as building the kind of love that you guys have in your marriage and are inviting others. I think that kind of love is way better. It really is. And it can be tempting to look at this sort of passion chasing, you know, like you have ambulance chasers and you have passion chasers. (laughs) (laughs) Like it can, we, we all look there and go, Oh, you know, that would be, that would be something, but it's, it's not as good. I just want to like, 
underscore yep. that and say, this is exciting to be able to build this kind yeah. of love in this kind of world. I mean, it's exciting that we're able to do that and a little miraculous too. So, Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. Reframing what excitement really is the thrill of building something lasting. Yeah, it is. And I, you know, if people were invited into our marriage and spent, I don't know, <laughs> a year with us, <laughs> They would see moments of romance and excitement and play, but they would also see a lot of tears, a lot of long conversations, a lot of silence, a lot of not being sure what else to do, exasperation, right? I mean, yeah. that they would see all of that. Yeah. But it's all part of the foundation. It's like, it's adding something to it. And, you know, we've looked our kids in the eyes so many times when they've had friends and loved ones and family members divorce, and we've said to them, you will never have to go through that. Because the two of us, and we both commit, we will just keep working at it. We care deeply about this family and about this marriage. And as long as both of us are are trying hard, we'll figure it out. It's messy. There may be times we're not talking to each other, or we don't know what to say, or we're talking way too much to each other. <laughs> but that for me is thrilling. That's exciting to me, is to know that we're creating something and shaping it, as Sue Johnson says, shaping yes. our love, yes. shaping our marriage. I it's not this static, passive thing. So good. I don't know what your marriage is like. I haven't spent hours with you, but I would have to say by way of validation, I have spent hours with <laughs> Jeff and Jody's boy, their son. And mm-hmm. to the extent that our children are a reflection of themselves, like you guys did something right. I'd set that boy up with any of my sisters if they were still around. He is so fantastic. You guys are creating wonderful things. I have a question that I want to ask and then something to offer, but you've done so much work with trauma and helping couples with trauma. It struck me the other day, like I'd like to learn more, a simple, let me put it this way. Christians, when you have done something against yourself, we have this practice called repentance. Everybody knows what it is. Bring to awareness what you did wrong, feel something, have certain conversations where you acknowledge the wrong, that's just built into many believers' understanding. But when it comes to wrong that's done to you, I'm starting to notice we don't have the same richness of appreciation of what happens next. We just say, forgive them. You just need to forgive. I mean, that very much can be a a really important part of the process, but I would like to learn more from you, maybe even future episodes about how you summarize in a simple way the kind of practice that we can do when someone has harmed us. Like, what does that look like? What I would love is for this healing from trauma to become a thing that we know we can do. And we can do it with, you know, at some point with people that have harmed us. But I I feel like there's a lot more light and knowledge about it that But it's usually like, go talk to a trauma-oriented specialist. That's usually where it Mm -hmm. ends up. Yeah, sure. I'm talking about the work couples can do on their own. And this is really a centerpiece of your podcast. So I'm I'm asking a question you've probably answered repeatedly. So maybe it's just an encouragement to keep going because it seems to me, if we could get better at this, like, no, no, there's this thing we can do to heal woundedness and injury. I just think that could change so much. And- yeah. And I think at a, at a very basic level, just the hope and the permission and the expectation that this is something that can be done. I think we start there because so many times it's like, I have so many women. I mostly work with couples where, where the, the guys betrayed her. That's the bulk of what I work with. I have so many women that sit on my couch and will say to me, I can't believe I'm sitting here. I promised myself when I got married that that if he ever did X, Y, and Z deal breaker, I'd be out. And then they're sitting there with this new possibility of one, they feel humiliated, but two, they also feel kind of like uncertain that this is even the right choice to be done because they're seeing other things that are still worth holding on to, whether it's children or their legacy or the, their own years of togetherness, or there's all these little strands that keep them together. And and so, you know, to the point of this podcast, this episode today, Jacob, like, I do want people to know like those strings, all of them haven't been cut and they're, they are suspending this relationship. It might feel precarious, but let's use the support that's there. Let's use the, the work you've already done. It doesn't mean that it's all completely over. 
And that's a hard thing to tell somebody who's in the throes of trauma. And I'm not insensitive to that. And I don't just bypass it all and say, no, this can work. There is a process, an agonizing process of rebuilding trust, even before forgiveness sometimes can can start to feel like a possibility. But to your point, I would just say the short answer is people need to know that there even is a possibility that that can happen and that they're not stupid for trying it. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. I'm going to drop. So the longer version of my article is this book. Once upon a time, he wasn't feeling it anymore. <laughs> yes, I saw I'm gonna, that. I'm wow. going to drop 10 of these in the mail. If you just want to give them to anybody that writes in, you know. Okay, so what we're going to do is because there's going to be a lot of demand for copies of this book. Jacob is going to make available this book for free for anybody who wants a copy of it. But because he doesn't have enough paperback copies... He is making the PDF version of it, the electronic version of the book, available for free. So if you want a copy of the book, go to the show notes and click on the link there, and you'll be able to get a free copy of his book available to anybody who wants it. And for the physical copies, I will give those away on social media. So stay tuned on Instagram, and I'll be giving away the paper copies if you want one of those. Yeah, Jacob, thank you. Thank you, Jacob. I'm yes. such a, I'm a huge fan of your work and podcast and it it feels sacred to me feels like this is a a ministry that we all need to be a part of so thank you for letting me join thank you jacob thank you for your work your work feels sacred to me Mm -hmm. and we just really appreciate your the thoughts your your depth of understanding that you've been able to share with us today thank you Yeah, it's a real privilege to be joined Mm -hmm. with you in this. So thank you, Jacob. Sweet. You didn't say that. Keep up the great work. I invite you to read the full text of his article, What's Hijacking So Many Beautiful Relationships. And you can find that link in the show notes. Thank you, Jacob, for joining us on this episode. It's just always so great to engage with you and talk about these so important things. I tell you, so much of what you're sharing is just really foundational stuff for marriage and strikes at the heart of really what makes great relationships. And it's hidden from so many of us because of so much of the programming and messages that are out there and that we just take in or maybe absorb and don't even realize it. And so I highly encourage you to read this and to talk with your partner about it. And if you're single and thinking about relationships, this will hopefully help you reorient some of your expectations and might open up possibilities for relationships that maybe you thought weren't going to work for you. So There's just a lot of implications here by understanding and embracing these concepts. And as always, I love connecting with all of you. Thank you so much for your input, your feedback about the podcast, and just being here listening every single week. And as always, I want you to know about where else you can find resources from me. Um, You can go to the website fromcrisis2connection.com. There's past episodes of this podcast. I do write a weekly question and answer column. And then, of course, I've got online courses and other resources for you to support you in your own healing and recovery. And I mean it. Drop me a line. Let me know what's working for you, what you need. Happy to be a resource for you in your healing. Thanks for being here every single week, and I'll catch you guys in the next episode. Mm